0: I'll take yeah. Gabby out. Yeah, I'll take Gabby Bye, Gabby. Bye, Gabby. <laughs> oh, my God, we're live. We're going to talk about Billionaire Space Races, Crossing the Carmen Line, and what's next. Just kidding. All right, we're here for Disrupt TV. And more importantly, we've got our awesome guests today. I've got my awesome special co-host in place, Liz Miller. Vala Ashar is on vacation, and uh, will be joining us in the next few weeks. Uh, but more importantly, we've got our awesome guests today. We're going to go backwards real quickly. Um, We'll go with Jeff and then we'll go to Sunil. Talk a little bit about where you're calling in from today and what you'll be talking about real quickly. So Jeff, you're on mute, but pop off mute and come on and say hello. So,
1: Hi. um, Okay. I'm, uh, well, Jeff Ullman, as as Ray said. Uh, I'm um, calling in from my home uh, on Stanford campus. Uh, I'm a retired professor of computer science at Stanford. Um, And... uh, I will be, uh, I guess, attempting to answer some of the questions that uh, that Ray has organized and, and in particular do some prognostications um, for the next 20 years of crazy thoughts. Anyway.
0: We are totally looking forward to the prognostications. Yeah. That's actually the best part of the show. So okay. I love crazy
2: thoughts, quite frankly. I think they're
3: the best kind.
0: So that's where we're headed. And Sunil, where are you calling in from and what are we talking about today?
3: Hey, Ray and Liz and uh, Professor Jeff, I'm uh, calling in from uh, right here in San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, I'm going to talk today about design and innovation. And uh, as you know, my role, I'm the managing director for design at uh, Vipro Company.
0: Wonderful. Hey, that's great. We're going to start the show. Elle's going to do the honors. But while she's doing that, I want to thank our sponsors, IFS, robots and pencils for supporting the show and supporting this awesome uh, guest list that we have going forward. So uh, with that, you know, we're going to start the show um, and we'll begin. So here we go. Three, two one we are live so welcome to disrupt tv super happy to have you here i'm ray wong one of the co-hosts and co-founders of disrupt tv we're here every week um and as you know i'm the founder and ceo of constellation research uh, but more importantly uh putting out a new book out there if you get a chance to read it, it's called everybody wants to rule the world i'm joined here with my awesome co-host liz miller Liz, do a quick introduction of yourself and then uh, we'll, we'll jump into you, sunil right?
2: Hey everyone, Liz Miller, Vice President, Principal Analyst here at Constellation Research covering the fun-filled world of CX, marketing, service, sales, and the land of the CMO. But most importantly today, I am officially hosting for Vala. It's a hashtag, it's a vibe, it's a whole feeling. Vala, we hope you're having a great vacation but I'm just going
0: to take over. Cool. Hosting for Vala. Well, today's guest is awesome. We've got Sunil He He's a very, very important individual. Um, he's actually one of the folks that leads Design It as the global managing director. He's got 26 years of industry experience and he's co-founded a number of Silicon Valley startups along the way. Um, he also was at TCS Interactive, grew the team um, to almost a billion dollars. And also he joined Design It in the spring of 2020. Good timing there, Bring his extensive <laughs> experience in the design and tech industry. But before that, He's an engineer at heart, he worked at Lockheed, Um, he worked at SonicWall, he's the VP of Business Systems for Fox Interactive Media, and of course, uh, today he's heading up global leadership team with Chersti and Kali from the sunny and vibrant Silicon Valley in California, and of course, he's also an avid typography nerd, so we're going to go fonts with him a little bit, and also talk about dystopian sci-fi. But more importantly, he's here, you can follow him at GlueCode, and of course, we'll give the first question to Liz. So welcome to the show, Sunil. Thank you. Okay, Sunil, sure. Thank You Liz.
2: You know that anytime you and I get to talk, I have to start with the big question, maybe a little debunking, but we talk about like, so design it, it's in the name design. What is design? You know, it's not the coloring and department, but what is it? Is it a fad? What is strategic design? Give us a little background.
3: Sure. Sure. So let's, let's step back to uh, old days. So modern design, uh, modern origins of this word design is uh, from the 1580s, from France. It's a verb, a design, and it actually means a scheme or a plan in mind uh, from that French verb. But uh, first of all, what design is not, just like you said, right? design is not about making pretty things just for the sake of it. Design is the art and science of solving problems with purpose innovating with purpose. So design helps you expand your mind and design has the tools and techniques for that. Design brings honesty to your work, actually. Good design is honest, like uh, you know, Dieter Braun said. Uh, design should make user interactions with the world, with the product, with the environment, more natural and complete. Uh, good design is invisible. It doesn't exist, it doesn't show up. So the kind of design we do at Design It We design for how it works, we design for how it looks, and more importantly, we design for how it feels. When something works well, it naturally looks and feels good.
0: You know, it's a great point, right? A lot of people ask about design and the role of how design plays in high high growth. Right. Where does it grow and how do you actually use design to innovate and and provide that growth opportunity that's out there? Um, A lot of people feel design might take too long to get to, right? Might actually impede growth. What's your view on that? And where does that You know, what do clients see?
3: Yeah, good good design uh, with good research and uh, good methods actually help you, um, you know, people use this word fail fast. Uh, I would say succeed better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) Design design has a significant place in, in innovation uh, and growth. So design can deliver these hidden perspectives uh, that give a, a competitive edge. It can help you see uh, things that you don't see. like for example, speculative design is an area that we practice. Speculative design we help uh, some of the greatest brands in the world to see those Black Swan events and Black yes. Swan moments which you don't see generally when you are in the business blinders, right? Uh, or a frog in the pond uh, view of the world. So we help uh, companies innovate and look at high growth, high potential, just like the book you have here in the background, somebody called Ray Van wrote it. And it has a lot of this, uh, you know, to, to really re- invert the pyramid. I think it's page 93 or something, Ray, in your book, Inverting the Pyramid. He helped invert that pyramid to focus on what matters Ah, for growth, to so design can help you translate research into innovation and thereby bring in growth models. Wonderful.
2: I love that, and it also brings in a whole lot of empathy, right? Because it forces you to sit in someone else's shoes, and I and and I think that brings up my big question, which is you hear everybody and their mom talking about like, I've been to a design workshop. I'm going to go to a new design thinking. Like everyone seems to claim to do it, but when it really just comes out, it ends up being like a new mission statement or there doesn't seem to be like what you're talking about. Like that there's that tangible good direction that is impactful. So is it a fad? Like is design thinking a fad or? God, like okay, is Sunil gonna hang up on me now? But I kind of feel like everyone's doing it.
3: Yes. I, I, I'll I'll say what's wrong with today's design thinking. <laughs> yeah. So it, it it's become a fad. It's uh, just like you said, everybody's mom and pop are in a design thinking workshop and everybody's mom and pop are actually organizing design thinking workshop. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So, so but the state of uh state of the practice of design thinking is kind of dire and unfortunate today. Um, in how it is practiced in, in in an industrialized fashion, all right. So design he has done today, it kind of privileges a kind of innocent mind of mindset, right? It, it expertise becomes a burden sometimes in this, uh, and it prevents the kind of innovative thinking that can come uh, come only from kind of a novice mind. So it, it kind of professes empathy, user centeredness, sometimes in a in a very superficial way. So with the knowledge acquired through very brief, uh, limited contact, you know, design thinking adopts, uh, as practiced today, adopts the language of the humanities, but avoids this deep understanding of context in favor of rigid rules and processes, and then collection of this whole walls of sticky notes. It's design thinking (laughs) is not this whole wall of sticky notes, right? Some of the design thinking that is unfortunately practiced today emphasizes on like the quantity of ideas. Ideas are cheap. Without always engaging with what those ideas actually are, what is the context of those ideas? So there is this thing called uh, you know collector's fallacy, where the good feeling that comes from producing and collecting ideas that becomes a substitute for actual doing the work. But creativity is hard and you know uncomfortable. So good design thinking, as we practice, takes effort. It's 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 hard. If it's Done in the right way, but unfortunately, it's not. It's become a fad. So we, we we don't do it that way, Liz. I can guarantee you that.
2: Yeah. Well, I like that you specify that you guys and, and having having had the opportunity to talk to you so many times before, you talk about strategic design. It's not just thinking about it. It's it's yeah. focused. It's very strategic. So I think I you know I think that that thought is certainly there.
3: Yeah we, are, yeah, we are designing and innovating for the long term, yeah. not the short. Term, right.
0: No, it makes a lot of sense. And, and given all the uh, design, design thinking hucksters out there, uh, you know, we actually have to get this done in the right way. Um, and one of the important areas that we keep seeing is really the role of AI as it plays, you know, in terms of not only capturing information or creating self-sensing environments, um, in terms of actually, you know, creating opportunities for organizations to think about where automation and sentience come into play. Um, where do you see that? How does design and how do you design for AI today?
3: So modern AI has made some leap you know, progress and leaps and bounds, right? You you saw uh, GitHub Copilot writing code uh, using GPT three, right? And it it, it is it's amazing. But modern AI is generally invisible. So how do you design for the invisible? So how do you design for sentient systems, right? Uh, so AI is um, most of design is you know uh, done as deterministic systems. AI is probabilistic. AI is a series of probabilities. Probabilities. You have you take a picture uh, of uh, of a fruit that, and AI gives you that it's ninety percent an apple and uh, you know five percent an orange. So you're designing for probabilities. So we are as designers used to building you know specific things in a design uh, in a deterministic way. So for uh, for designing for AI, there's a whole new thinking tooling the whole tool chain and data driven uh, design that needs to take place that can design for probabilistic uh, thinking
0: makes a lot of sense uh, down the line
2: so here's the big question right because I, i think when you start to talk about things like you have to design for the invisible that's a big statement right that's like let's design water like what like i like to wrap my head around it is, is, is huge. So, But what are some of the lessons that you've learned? And I think that there have been really big ones that have been like seismically transformational, right? That design has been root of, whether it's Industry 4.0, whether it is new business units, whether it is designing for the invisible. What are some of those core principles and best practices of design? And I would probably dare to say innovation that,
3: that you have seen. Sure, uh, great question. Design and uh, innovation doesn't mean, you know, as as practiced, uh, doesn't mean simply coming with the newest shiny thing. It doesn't mean <laughs> something, right? What? So, yeah, it, it it
0: We want shiny it, objects. You know, yeah.
3: like shiny,
2: Sunil, Come on.
3: <laughs> yeah. So good design that drives innovation means actually discovering new business models uh, that yield right. long term profit uh, for the organization. If it's if I if I look at in you know, a purely capitalistic way. Right? Okay, so it has long term profits, it, it is it is those growth drivers for companies. So businesses will often promote design and innovation, but generate ideas that aren't sustainable. There's always this, let's do a, a chatbot for the bank as even if the, the chatbot really sucks. right? Uh, <laughs> it looks terrible, but that's not design and innovation, right? It may be that the organization is unable to absorb the innovation. By the way, I've seen this. Where organizations do this uh, design and innovation investment, but they are not able to absorb it and put it into the production line, right? Like actually, put it in the hands of customer. A lot of design dies soon after the it is prototyped, okay. Even if it is successful. So I've I've learned to uh, you know streamline design uh, and handhold it so that it actually gets to the you know the the customers touch it right so it may be that it has you know no place sometimes in uh, i've seen design innovation sometimes has no place in corporate strategy it's not in the plan it should be put mm-hmm. in the plan you you need to put in the strategy and planning uh, to actually derive value out of it it, it may be that uh, you know innovation as good as it sounds is a is a press release in most companies okay it's a, it's a pr moment it doesn't actually have a profitable business model behind it so Design and innovation should be purposefully driving sustainable, long-term business models. So the the decision makers and planners should really take a principled stand towards it. So business models developed, you know, developed through innovation activities must meet those uh, standards of like desirability, feasibility, viability, adaptability, and and may I say sustainability. Uh, so it 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 should not be just because oh we have this cloud technology let's Innovate on the cloud doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Don't design for that. Don't innovate for that. it so should shouldn't
2: be just cloud. be aspirational, you
0: say? <laughs>
3: yeah, it just be aspirational. So in the process, also let's not forget the human at the end. At least you and I talked about this earlier yeah. too. You know, keep your design honest and and innovation honest and human centered. Your 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 design will succeed. Your innovation will succeed when you when you fit it around the human.
2: Yeah. But you know, one of the things that you brought up that I loved that you brought up when, when you and I have talked about this in the past has been you have to have that invitation to everyone feeling a little bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the process of going through that design process is gonna ask some really hard, uncomfortable questions. And you have to be you have to be okay with not being okay in those moments. But that's what gets you to the good stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, we're definitely seeing that as well. And, and along the way, I mean, so, you know, like, you know, clients, I mean, what are they looking for? I mean, you've been talking to folks We're post pandemic, everyone's jumping in, um, people know that they've got to get their digital channel. Right. But that's there's more to that than trying to figure this out than just a digital channel. What are you seeing? What kind of advice are you talking to clients about? Like, what are some advice for people who are listening, you know, as they're trying to figure out what's next post pandemic?
3: Sure. One of the things I believe, uh, and uh, we have seen it with the pandemic is change happens gradually, then suddenly, um, you know, uh, organizations were not prepared for this. Although they were investing in transformation, they were investing it. In, the pace of it is so accelerated so much. Uh, and talent is, un, you know, a difficult thing right now, both in design and technology talent. So we, clients are asking us, you know, how, how can we, accelerate our pace of uh, innovation through design um, how can we uh, they are not just they they've adapted now they understand uh, or rather there's a there's an understanding that uh, you know uh, the human uh, human centricity plays a huge role in the their products becoming successful or their services becoming successful so there's a there's a huge uh, shift that I see uh, in human centeredness so I am having conversation with CIOs about human centeredness, not with the chief design officer or not. Wow.
0: So we've seen a big shift. I mean, people actually people are actually talking about this at the executive level, which hasn't happened in a long time.
3: Yeah. Right. Design and human centeredness board level issue. Wow.
0: There we go. We have it from Sunil. Design is a boardroom issue. Um, Any last questions from you, Liz? So it's Sunil
2: what's up next like I want to know what's up next for Sunil like you listen you've built massive businesses you have been exceedingly successful in guiding uh design it and and Vipro has been terrific in staying ahead of the curve when it comes to really bringing design to tangible businesses you're really making change what's next where are you heading come on you're staying put clearly but what's next
3: So uh, great, actually. I'm I'm figuring it out, but I've been uh, uh, I'm I'm actually encouraged by what I'm seeing and kind of dinners going to space today. Uh, There's 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 a lot of design to be done in the future for you know transport space transportation for hotels in space for industries in space. There is there is there's so much scope for sustainability. I want to be I want to be involved and you know design. It has actually. Is, is pivoted towards actually sustainability and circularity. We, sh- we now, as designers, have to take uh, a responsibility and accountability to our planet in creating, understanding materials, understanding that the decarbonization cycle, and actually.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a huge piece in focus decarbonization. on. They are
3: like our universe, they are molecules building new things. That's where I want to go. So little
2: things like you're you're looking to try to tackle like little topics like you know
3: door handles and cups. Yeah, (laughs) like it.
0: We're here with Sunil Karkara, VP and Global Managing Director at Design It. Uh, he's a designer at heart, engineer by training, but more importantly, a curious individual looking into sci-fi and other areas. Um, Sunil, we we'll have to get back together soon. Um, you can follow him on Twitter at Gluco, G-L-U-E-C-O-D-E, and more importantly, follow the blogs and uh, other uh, things that they have at Design It. You guys have a really cool podcast. Uh, actually, you know what is that podcast? You should share it with us. So,
3: Actually, our podcast is called Yellow. Y E L O, and uh, we 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 bring in very controversial topics. We don't talk about design it. We talk about topics of yep. social justice, topics of uh, future of transportation, uh, you know, topics that that matter to humans. And I think Ray will be very soon seen in our podcast shortly.
2: <laughs> but wait, <laughs> and- Sunil, I I just want to know: in your podcast, do you tackle what I think is probably one of the most important issues for mankind? Comic Sans. Comic <laughs> Sans. I, I, I'm just saying, like we have to address this. Like Sunil, we've got to take care of this. I can't deal with it anymore. It has to go.
3: It it is interesting that you know in in the past, Steve Jobs presented using Comic Sans. So I, have, I have screenshots of it, but but I have uh, you know it has lived its time. I think uh, let us let us give its due. Comic Sans has made us better. Uh, Because of it, we have better fonts
0: now, (laughs) or (laughs) typing. Comic Sans, the most divisive font in the history of typography.
2: Out of there, Sunil. (laughs) But
0: anyways, we'll leave it as that. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks for being here. We're going to jump to our next guest. So thank you, Sunil. So very, very cool. Well, welcome. We've got our next guest. (laughs) So, one of the legends in computer science right here, uh, Jeff Ullman. uh, Many people know him. Uh, Jeff has been a professor at Stanford. He served as the department chair for computer science. He was named the the Stanford W. Ashman Professor of Computer Science in 1994, emeritus in 2003. He's also inducted in 1994 as a fellow of the Association for Computing Machinery. And of course, in 2000, he was awarded the Knuth Prize. And Ullman is also the co-recipient with John Hopcroft, of the 2010 IEEE John Von Neumann Medal. I can't think of any other awards that you could have won other than this year. Congratulations. You're a winner with your uh, partner, the uh, Turing Award for 2020 with Al Aho. C- congratulations. And of course, he's here on Disrupt TV today. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Well, thank you. Uh,
1: uh, thank you for that introduction. Uh, I am very happy to be here.
0: Well, first of all, I will pass it on to Liz for the first question, but hey, thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us. And you're on the Stanford campus, uh, one of the most exciting places for computer science. So
2: and uh, one of the things that so I was I was a politics major in college. So, Professor, I I would not have been in like I I would have just messed up every single one of your courses. So I'm going to ask you this. Uh, So first off, congratulations on winning the ACM Turning Award for Innovations in Algorithms, Formal Programming Language, Compilers and Databases. That is a mouthful that even I, the humble marketer uh, co-hosting here. That was a lot. Wow. Amazing. But we often see these patterns like we we can see patterns and trends and they start to repeat themselves. And as we start to move more to a decentralized uh, computing and cloud model, what stays the same? Right. So, what stays the same, but what starts to be radically different? Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, well, thanks for that. Uh, uh, look, I, I could answer that probably in a million different ways, uh, <laughs> but let me, um, but let me talk about one issue, which is code optimization. See, oh, wow. back, uh, back in the um, the sixties, the seventies, the uh, there was a lot of work done on. Uh, optimizing conventional language. Think of it as C or C++. Uh, and uh, the you know for for just for a quick a quick example, when you write a loop, if there's some complicated formula that's ex- that's evaluated inside the loop, parts of that uh, formula will involve the loop index. Other parts not. Uh, if you take out the parts that don't depend on the loop index, they're going to get computed the same way every time. You just do it once outside the loop. That saves some time. Uh, the technology led to uh, code optimi- optimizing compilers that, that would speed your, your code up by a factor of two. Uh, now, this is still very important in, uh, at least for if you're running a large program that, that's going to take hours, uh, or if you're running a little program that... You're running over and over again, um, you know, on a, your, your web server. Uh, if you can save uh, 50% of your time running the program, that means you can do with 50% less hardware. That does make it. That still makes a difference. What's new? Maybe in the 80s and 90s, uh, optimization for very high-level languages like SQL. Uh, it probably was the best example. It took us maybe 20 years to. Uh, learn how to optimize SQL. The interesting thing there is you get not just a factor of two speed up, but orders of magnitude speed up. It makes it possible to write in a very high level language like SQL, uh, which uh, you really couldn't do without, without optimizing. Uh, now, uh, more recently, uh, the same uh, very high level language uh, with powerful optimizers is uh, the story is being repeated in something like uh, Spark. uh uh this is the um uh, the uh what's i guess becoming a standard for uh doing uh, p- power, you know essentially using computer uh, computer clusters writing code on computer clusters um uh, and i think there the community is now beginning to do really serious optimization of spark code and and this looks like a very very exciting development uh, for the future.
0: Wow! I mean, the ability—we might even get to that point uh, where code actually writes code on its own. I mean, do you foresee that day where um, we can get to sentient code, uh, where that optimization actually occurs within the code on its own?
1: Um, uh, probably not. Um, you know, there, there the, you you get into to this. Um, uh, undecidability problems. Uh, pretty pretty quickly, you don't know exactly what code is doing, so it's very hard to. Uh, I mean, you can do it in, in some special cases, such as SQL. SQL is it's 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 easy because it's not a Turing complete language, uh, so you can't optimize it. Uh, you, um, uh, but but if if you want to start looking at C programs and writing. Uh, you think you're gonna write a program that's gonna look at a C C program figure out what it's doing and figure out how to do it better that's not going to happen
0: (laughs) we still can't get through that problem of infinite strings uh that will continue towards the end which is which is what you're referring to which is kind of the challenge so okay no i do get that i do understand that part um but let's take ourselves out of that, right? We're we're actually seeing some interesting advancements in quantum computing, and you know we're getting to the point where we've got the hardware, we've got some semblance of a stack uh, to work with. Over time, you got Honeywell and IBM and other folks jumping into the fray. Uh, where do you see? Like, where, where is quantum computing today? Are we too early? Is it just the beginning of the cycle? Um, you know, is there? You know, can we get these qubits stable enough? Uh, what do you think? Um, well,
1: I actually, um. I mean, we get, we, the Turing lecture was was broadcast uh, yesterday, and I think it's it's still available. Uh, Al spent uh, a good fraction of the of the uh, Turing lecture on uh, computing. Uh, he knows a lot more than I do about it, and and I encourage you to to listen to what he has said. Uh, but uh, the I, I think he would agree that. Uh, we're really not there yet, and it's not clear that we're going to get there. Uh, I think what what happened. Well, first of all, quantum communication, what, the, the, what they call the spooky action at a distance. This seems to be real and may be be useful. It may uh, give you a way to transmit data secretly with no possibility that anyone can uh, can 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 intercept it. Um, uh, but when you talk about quantum computers, uh, he said, he said yesterday that IBM just came out with 65 qubits. Um, uh, you see, the, the problem was the Shor's algorithm, uh, which the thing that shows how a quantum computer could, in principle, uh, factor numbers and therefore break RSA encryption. Correct. Uh, it's, um, it's in a sense a snare and a delusion, uh, in that uh, you need something like, uh, again, I'm quoting really Al's talk yesterday, uh, millions of qubits to, to, to break current RSA codes. Uh, it doesn't appear that uh, that quantum computers are on, on a Moore's law uh, curve, where the number of qubits is going to double every two years or something. Uh, It's growing slowly, Uh, it may in fact be growing exponentially, we don't really have enough data to to see whether it's an exponential curve, but even if it is an exponential curve, it's slower than the Moore's law for conventional computing. So, um, you know, if now you need uh, millions of of qubits uh, to to break RSA, by the time you get there, RSA codes will, will use many more bits and you won't you'll need more than millions uh, of, of qubits so I, I don't think that a, a quantum computing is really going anywhere uh, shorts algorithms seem to have been a very interesting anomaly since then nobody's really come up with any really interesting algorithms for doing things that appear to require exponential time uh, and and doing them fast so so my, my advice is let somebody else worry about them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we're not going to be operating in polynomial time, and we won't have to worry about you know these uh, you know basically these 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 algorithms breaking public key cryptography for quite some time is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I, well, that's that's my my guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm really I'm cool. going to turn. And let so someone else. So, so, <laughs> yeah,
2: so I'm I'm going to ask you this, professor, because I'm really curious to know. We kind of talk about 2020 in this sense of like so much happened, there's so much, there were so many major breakthroughs. But if I could ask you to step to 2040 and take a look back, right? So it's 2040, we're looking back on the field of CS. In your in in, from your vantage point, what about any breakthroughs that we've seen in 2020? are still gonna stand that test of time. Do you, do you expect to be kind of foundational as we keep moving forward and, and, you know, foundational for the field and for society for that matter?
1: Yeah, well, let's see, I, I'm first of all, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first of your guests to quote Yogi Berra uh, about <laughs> the, uh, prognostication is difficult, especially about the future, but, um, uh, I don't know I, 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 I hate to, to try to guess what's going on. Uh, what's going to happen even in the next couple of years. Uh, let's, let me just start with, with a, a, a recollection um, that I think illustrates how difficult it is to, to prognosticate. Um, back in the early, it was I think the winter of, of 1992, it's important the date's important. Um, I was one of about three hundred people invited to Washington to a meeting to discuss what was then called the information superhighway. Yep. And uh, again, these were you know it was it was uh, you know af- academics, it was uh, uh, top industry people, and um, it, the, the discussion verged on whether. Information superhighway was going to be built by the telephone companies or the cable companies, and uh, there was some mention of little protocols like Gopher, okay. Uh, and nobody mentioned HTTP or HTML, I had no idea <laughs> they existed at the time. Um, you know, and then the next year, you know, uh, you know, so um. You know, so, so you got to take what I what I say with a with a grain of salt. But uh, what I'd like to do is 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 maybe throw out a couple of, of areas where I think some progress might uh, build on the technology that that we have uh, today. Okay. First of all, uh, social media seems to be a tremendous problem. Uh, I tend actually I. I stay away from it, right? You know, I was asked to put my Twitter handle. I don't have a Twitter handle. I'm not on Facebook. I just stay away from all of this stuff. Uh, but that's my, my personal opinion. Uh, it's pretty obvious now that we have a serious problem about the the, 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 uh, the ill effects of, of of people using social media. Uh, just for example, um, hate speech uh, seems to, to have, you know, be, be rampant. And uh, you would think that uh, this is a problem that can be automated away. Well, first of all, you have to define what hate speech is. And that may depend upon the context. Um, uh, Just, uh, you know, if you look, let's say, the world of newspapers, the standards of what is appropriate at the New York Times, the Washington Post is rather different from what it, what it is at uh, the National Enquirer. Uh, so um, you know so so we may see that different social media have basically different policies, but to define what hate speech or you know inappropriate uh, material of, of any uh, of whatever sort, um, you want to get rid of uh, misinformation. I think by the way, Misinformation about medical matters is a much more serious uh, matter than misinformation about uh, whether the thing you saw streaking across the sky is a UFO or not. Uh, 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 But uh, but but this is a a real, very hard technical problem of how, even given a definition of what it is you don't want people to be saying, how do you find out that they're saying it? and 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 decide that uh, correctly? Um, uh, I think a, a, another, another interesting direction uh, is in privacy research. Uh, uh, I don't know, I've, I have been quoted uh, actually uh, correctly many times. I have a, a slogan, which is, uh, I, I don't care if my toaster sees me naked. The, um, uh, the, the, the idea is it's a machine; it doesn't right. matter. And right. and my analogy: I don't care if Google computers know something very, you know, deep about me. Uh, they they know where I've been. Uh, they know what I search for, and so on as long as it stays within the computer that's fine the problem is when people start knowing now, uh, about it now um, uh, i'm sure at least many of you listeners uh, have heard about the sort of the counter argument is this the what i call the target example where where a uh, target um, the the retailer uh, learned that a 16 year old girl was pregnant on the basis of things that she had bought at target and started sending her uh, uh, snail mail uh, advertising other products for things that, that I guess a pregnant woman would would want and uh, her father uh, found out about this and uh, hit the roof because she hadn't told her parents yet I mean, um, and um, uh, you know there was a there was a major freak out over this now, now to my my mind, the problem is that dad was opening her mail, that uh, again, <laughs> that, that it was it was people intruding into the process. Now, uh, yes, OK, she's only 16. The father has a right to open the mail, so you know, I get that. Um, you
2: want to know the backstory on that one, Professor?
1: I would love to. She
2: opted, she opted in for the baby registry in a kiosk in store. Oh. So, the, the missing piece so, of the information is she didn't oh. tell dad oh. that either.
1: <laughs> oh, so well, what, you're, what you're saying is that it was very easy for Target to to figure that one out. Okay.
0: It was very easy for Target to target her.
1: Yeah. It was, um, very,
2: she, she asked for them to, in, in a way. But, but I think your point is so important that the human intervention wasn't even necessarily someone at Target or the company that was managing that program for them. It was dad. It dad called a press conference in front of Target and accused them of corrupting his daughter. I mean it was he opened the mail. It was I think you're mm. very right in that interve- that point of intervention. Yeah.
0: So yeah. well hey but b- b- but before you go, I do want to talk about something you're interested in, which is really subscription based models versus ad supported models and uh, and really where that's going. Um, and talking about ads and the relationship to privacy. Um, you know, you're talking about a company uh, that might, was doing subscription based search. And let's talk a little bit about that real quick.
1: Yeah. Well, um, I. Okay, yeah, I'm not even going to mention the name of the company, but, but I was listening a couple of weeks ago to um, uh, something on, on, I guess, uh, B- a Bloomberg or, or, or something. But Some guy is going to uh, do, you know, says, oh, it's horrible that Google knows, uh, knows about you and, and, and sends you ads based on what they know. And uh, he's going to give you a, a subscription-based search that, that doesn't learn anything about you. Uh, even assuming that he could do as well as Google, which I, I really doubt, because they've had you know now decades to to perfect the um, uh, what they do. Um, does anybody really want to pay to avoid ads? Uh, I, I wanted to, to tell you uh, an experience I had on, on Prime Day. I you I, know I Prime Day, but for some reason I just sort of went and saw what there was, and um, uh, I. They they offered me a um, a, a new a new uh, a tablet for, and I could buy it for um, fifty dollars without ads, and sixty dollars with ads. Uh, <laughs> and uh, now I can afford that extra ten dollars, but I said, hey, you know, they'll they'll, they'll you know suggest books that I want to read, uh, and and they'll and and they'll. Uh, you know, so the ads are going to be useful to me. So I, I went for the $50 item. And I think the interesting question is, suppose they had said, it's $50 if we don't serve you ads. But for an extra $10, we'll give you uh, advice on things that you want. We'll use our computers and uh, our software developers will 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 we'll work to help me to choose... Uh, uh, help me, you know, navigate my life uh, uh, through through the ads that they will show me. I don't know I might have been willing to pay an extra ten dollars for that service. <laughs>
0: we're gonna have to run an A/B test on that. So, yeah. but hey, uh, we're here with. Jeff Allman, computer science professor at Stanford. I think that's too little of a title. This is one of the legends in computer science, Turing Award winner. And more importantly, um, we serve together on a board. So really appreciate you being here. No Twitter handle, no social media, but you can reach him at allman at gmail.com. Thank you so much for being on the show, Jeff, and uh, hopefully see you on the Stanford campus Thank soon.
1: Well, glad to see Glad to be here
0: very cool and you have one of your former students is joining us next she actually took two of your classes so we'll bring her on by and uh, actually say hello as well so very very cool all right (laughs) so cool well we are here um all right Um, So let's talk about who's next. Well, Clara, welcome. So good to see you. Uh, Very very good to have her here. And Clara, more importantly, you are the new CEO of a very, very important part of Salesforce, which is called the Service Cloud. So I'll do a quick bio of you. um, But more importantly, CEO of Salesforce Service Cloud, it's the number one customer service, digital service, and field service solution with a 360 degree customer experience and conversations but more importantly you've been on the fortune list for 40 under 40 most powerful women entrepreneurs fast companies most influential people in technology and a young global leader by WEF, uh, world economic forum so claire's also a member of the starbucks board of directors and serves as the executive chair hearsay systems a company you founded in 2009 uh, but here's for jeff um Clara graduated number one in CS at Stanford University, where she also received an MS in CS. And of course, she has an MS in Internet Studies from Oxford, um, where you were a U.S. Marshall Scholar. Very, very cool. You can follow Clara on Twitter at Clara Shy, Shih, So thanks for being here on the show. And, uh, you know, welcome.
4: Thanks. Great to be here.
2: Clara, my first question is, were you, have, were you worried there was going to be a pop quiz in that last segment?
4: A little bit, yeah. Like there was, was and he was
2: just going to be like, Clara, I know you're back there. What is this? And it would just be like, ah! Like, Big
4: time. I was trying to think about all my database knowledge. CS245, that's what I took from Professor Ullman.
2: Uh, that's <laughs> awesome. Should oh, I start welcome. with a serious question,
4: though? Like, Because
2: now, now we have some serious questions because we could gossip about like college days like the whole episode, probably, but we won't torture you with that. That'll so, be the next uh, one. I know that that'll be the next time we do this. So I'm going to I'm going to kick off. I'm going to ask the first question, if that's OK. Right. Um, yeah, Go for it. I, I think that more than any part of the organization, the pandemic literally just took customer service and just like shook it from like moment one, like probably in say February when we started hearing rumors that this was going to be a pandemic, it, it permanently has shifted customer service. So what are the big challenges like what are some of the big challenges that that the pandemic kind of highlighted and threw into the kind of in the way of a lot of customer service organizations and how did they really have to be addressed because it wasn't just one thing it was like we threw the kitchen sink at service all your agents have to go home everyone's going home. like everyone's mad everyone it was just like like the avalanche hit customer service. So
0: and your wait time will be two hours and three minutes.
2: <laughs> right. And and everyone's at home. So now you had agents with like dogs barking in the background. And how did that happen? And how do we shift? And like the concept of shift in pandemic was top of mind for everyone. So what what kind of sticks in your mind is some of the biggest things that happened through all of this that are kind of gonna change
4: service really not only in the near term but
2: in the long term?
4: You're so right. I mean in the last year service has become The foundation of every company i mean it was all along but i think especially during the pandemic companies a lot of companies stopped marketing they stopped focusing on sales it went back to basics to brass tacks and they said look we can't lose our customers that we have to go back and we have to make sure that they're okay and so customer service became much more prominent and in the meantime as you were saying right the the spike in call volume customer issues because of delays because of stores being closed and all the questions that the store used to handle now flooding into contact centers it created this really um you know hectic scenario at the exact time as you were saying that agents had to pivot quickly to working from home and so you've got higher demand in customer calls you have your your supply right your labor pool Some of them are just out of the workforce, some of them are sick or taking care of loved ones, or if they're home, they've got kids and dogs in the background. So they're just not as productive as they used to be. So it really was a perfect storm of all these different forces. And I think it created, I mean, necessity um, is the mother of invention and creativity, and that's exactly what we've seen across customer service. And so what have organizations done, right? Think about these new behaviors that we all expect, meal delivery, curbside pickup, booking appointments to go to the zoo, right? You can't just take your, I can't just take my six-year-old to the zoo anymore. I actually have to book an appointment to make sure that there's- You're going to Happy Hollow? I think. So everything, even going to the zoo, right? Everything has become digital first or digital only. And so we're seeing this in our numbers, right? Just the automation through the roof, use of Einstein service bots up 700% from last year and it's sustaining and continuing to grow actually. Um, and so self-service, true omni-channel being becoming a real thing. After years of talking about these concepts, companies have just been forced to actually implement and execute.
0: <laughs> wow, um, and, and we're actually seeing those changes actually happen and they're a little bit different across industries. I mean, in some industries they, they've got it, other industries haven't picked it up as quickly, um, but is there a common theme among industries and do you see certain industries doing it better or worse?
4: For sure, I mean, you think about this, right? We live in this era of digital automation in experiences, accelerated by the pandemic. And so of course the companies that are e-commerce, digital native organizations and in those industries, they had a leg up because they were already working this way. Um, and I think those already, you know, willing to throw money at the problem have always had great customer service. You look at a Zappos or a Nordstrom or a Four Seasons. I think the challenge has been how do we scale excellent service to any organization even those with very different business models than a four seasons right and that's that's really the challenge in terms of industries that have the biggest potential to disrupt i always you know think consumer first right as a consumer where do we get those recorded messages telling us that we have a two or three hour time? Where is it the worst? Because that's where there's the greatest upside. And so I think about those contact centers, I think about, you know, banks, won't name any names, insurance companies, health plans, telcos, right? Those are the companies that I and probably all of you have spent hours uh, waiting on hold to talk to over the last 12 months. And that's exactly what we're seeing in our businesses, those companies in those industries coming and saying, Hey, we're here. Um, We really want to transform. It's not just about turning on a bot. It's not just about enabling web chat or mobile chat or SMS. It's, It's really rethinking all of our processes and how we address what kinds of support questions.
0: You know, but hey, if, if, I don't know if you did this, but I was in a Chick-fil-A line and those were awesome. I don't know what happened, right? Of, of all the customer post-pandemic things, the Chick-fil-A line actually won out more than anything else. I mean, me and Bob were talking about, so like you, anywhere you go, these this, it was like the fast service, mobile delivery app worked, right? People actually helping each other in the line. I mean, people were happy, they were smiling, they're directing you. Like, it didn't matter which Chick-fil-A I went to, it was exactly the same experience. I mean, I literally, maybe that's one company that might've been doing something different, so. I think
4: that's a really good point right you think about the companies that offer excellent customer experience yes the tools and technologies and processes matter but it starts with having really great employees who are engaged who are empowered um, who are given the information and the tools to be successful and so I think that's what you see whenever behind every great experience is a happy employee and it's a big area of focus for us as we go into HR service as an expansion of of service cloud
2: but that's that's so interesting because I think that it's really easy at least for me when I start thinking about service. Yeah, those consumer kind of the the what I don't want to experience. I love when I call the airline that I use that it just automatically is like, "Yes, we recognize your phone. Let's tell you about all the things that we can help you with." Like I think those experiences are really easy to think of, but when we think about B2B experiences, right? For those of us in B2B enterprises, there was a lot of change that had to happen at the field service level too. And you talk about needing to have happy employees. Like how do you give them how do you empower them at that level so they can be better, that they, that there are experts, that there were experts on the line? I mean, it it changed. I mean, there were everything turned on its head, right? So how did those field service technicians become experts where they could be remote rather than having to be like literally there with the screwdriver, you know, literally doing things. And I think cloud services had a lot to do with changing that dynamic and my so my question for you is this like i can think of probably like a billion consumer organizations that did a great job even through the pandemic and kind of bringing that customer service uh, you know up leveling that and having happy employees and all that anyone that like is like listen you guys you guys work with the best of the best right like i'm just not going to not going to lie about that one any examples that maybe are kind of like a
4: little unexpected of people who really did a good job there's, there's so many. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think one that was just such high stakes because it went well beyond service was Sonos, right? We all know Sonos and their speakers. Oh, yeah, yeah. And if you think about pre-pandemic, the vast majority of their sales came from brick and mortar locations, like a Best Buy or a Magnolia, et cetera. The pandemic happens, all of a sudden, right, people are no longer going into these stores. They're scared to. Um, yep. But then people are at home and they want music, right? This is like therapy and it's like about survival. And so demand goes way up. So they quickly had to bolster their e-commerce um, channel and they became, I mean, they had e-commerce all along but they really became an e-commerce first an e-commerce majority company yeah. during the pandemic. And that was all you know, powered by service cloud. Or you look at a company like Dell, right? 17,000 agents, they run a contact center, multiple contact centers.
0: In Small company, you know, different <laughs> not international or <Right>. global.
4: <laughs> right, global. 24 we, seven you know, contact he still center
2: likes to call like he still likes to call and test the employees to see if they're doing it right. So like not in it's an easy some, environment.
4: Sometimes people just I mean, it depends on the issue, right? I, I usually don't like to call, but there are certain times when you, you want to call. Right. So think about this, the complexity of 24 seven contact centers, 125 different countries, 20 over 20 million calls a year and then pivoting overnight to people working from home. And again, being able to do that with with service cloud, service cl- um, console, without skipping a beat or other, you know, same with Samsung, right, in the UK or Pearson Education. You think about how much education has had to pivot to online. Everyone's suddenly working from home within days. And so we help them scale up their operations as demand spiked while deflecting a bunch of those calls to digital and self-service. Wow. Wow. And then I I really thought your point earlier about field service was an important one too, because we're also seeing, again, accelerated by the pandemic was the notion of field service is changing as the lines blur across field service, contact centers, and digital service. And I'll give you a specific example. Um, Six months ago, we launched a new product called um, the Virtual Remote Assistance. And it's that this idea that for a lot of field service issues that traditionally you would call a technician to come into your house or into your office for, um, because of COVID, people didn't feel as comfortable doing that, and yet the fix needed to happen. And so recognizing that everybody's got you know one of these, they've got their phone, and their phone has a camera on it. Um, what VRA, virtual remote assistance, does is it allows the customer, or if the field service technician is is out in the field, deployed and stuck, to actually show the machinery that, that they're dealing with. And for somebody remotely in the contact center, maybe who's got special expertise in that particular model to actually use AR to draw and, and show them where to reset, where to do this. And so we're actually seeing field service happen digitally, which in this case, it's like, is it still right. called field service if yeah. it's happening all virtually?
2: It, it, well, it expands the field and that's what, I mean, isn't that what digital is supposed to do to begin with, right? It, it, it just, it, it expands out that field and what our definition of it is. But I, I think what's so interesting about that story you just shared is it's not just about where digital allowed the field to go. It's where the organization is allowed to put the customer. And that's really, truly at the center of the enterprise, right? Like you're putting the customer right in there of what can they show you? What you know, you still need to solve the problem. You don't get to say, "Well, our field service agents are not allowed to come in your home for COVID." Good luck, you know, like see, see you later, <laughs> bye. You, know, you saw still our customer have to satisfaction provide that survey. service, right? <laughs> so I, I love that it just it it shifts the it shifts the conversation and brings the customer right back into it, which is
4: which is awesome. That's right, and I think going forward, companies are realizing, hey, for this whole host of issues that we were rolling trucks for before, now we can save a ton of expense and also. Make our customers much happier, kind of helping them fix it themselves. And only for the truly complex cases do we need to, to deploy field technicians. Yeah.
2: And no one gets yelled at at the call center, so you have happier employees. Like let's not <laughs> let's not diminish the like the value of like going back to Ray's Chick Fil A example, right? We can't diminish the value of really happy people. And you've just turned a call center person with expertise into an expert and that's awesome like that is a really cool way to recognize your people so i love i love that example well
0: hey i want to jump in real quick clara i mean look you've been in this business around service social service social selling i mean social just you were early pioneers in all these areas what's gotten better i mean you know you started hearsay in 2009 you're now at salesforce um i mean it's been what, 12 years, what improvements have really took place for customers? Uh, What things are here to stay? And uh, kind of a question we asked uh, Jeff Ullman earlier, Um, if it's 2040, like what from this post pandemic era sticks and makes it into 2040?
4: Yeah, I mean, when I started here, say 12 years ago, it was really about just being where the customer was, it was meeting the customer on social meeting the customer on SMS, on a mobile app, on web. I think we see now organizations of, of all sizes have done that. We have those those channels, but it's still not a seamless omni-channel experience, right? And this is what we saw in the pandemic was companies large and small coming to us and saying, hey, we, we've got this bot set up, we've got our website, we've got chat, but it doesn't all connect. And so that's that results in the customer experience of you know going and Googling an issue and not getting what they want, and then chatting with a bot and not getting what they want, and then having to repeat herself. Right? This happened to me. All, happens yeah. to me all the time to the agent. All of that context of what I tried to search for on the, the support website, on the information I shared with a bot, like all of that should be passed off yeah. seamlessly.
0: To the no agent. more cold transfers, okay. cold
4: handoffs. Right? We got to get right. rid
0: of those. They're they're horrible. <laughs> it's horrible.
4: Right? And then the days of you know agents kind of listening on the phone and like frantically trying to type in what the customer is saying, like those days are also over because we live in an era now of Siri and Alexa. And if I were to point back at the thing that I'm the proudest of over the last 12 months in service cloud, it's really been how service cloud voice has brought Siri and Alexa like capabilities to the contact center and to customer support teams. And you think about, again, human agents playing a critical role. How do we empower them to focus on the relationship, to focus on higher order tasks. Well, it's it's by taking things like when the customer talks about their issue or order number, we can transcribe that in real time and pop that open in the, in the agent's console so that the agent can really focus on resolving the issue more quickly while connecting with the customer
0: yeah and plus we're building the business graph i mean we're giving the capability there for you know organizations to keep bringing that tribal knowledge in so they can learn they can continue to actually learn from those experiences build on them and get to some better suggestions so but uh, it's so yeah. true
4: right and you think about in the past right if you you were an agent there's such high turnover in this business as you know you know if you got stuck you'd turn over to the agent next to you and you'd ask him or her for help with everyone at home you can't do that right you can't just Flagged Flag down your supervisor. So <laughs> we'll slack them we can, now.
0: We'll right, slack like, them in.
4: Yeah. <laughs> you, you certainly can slack them, right? That was a an, an exciting acquisition for us. But you shouldn't have to, right? We are using voice analytics. We know when an agent is stuck. We know when a customer is just not clicking with an agent. We can escalate. We can transfer. We can patch in. We um, can patch in a supervisor in the moment. And then after the call, we can really, instead of sampling one in a thousand calls for quality control, I can listen to all of them and analyze and know that, you know, Ray, maybe you need more training on um, a certain product and maybe... Liz, you need help on something else. And then Clara needs training on something else.
0: Anger so management for contact yeah, center agents, you know. <laughs> yeah. So we each
4: get our personalized training plan as we continuously upskill, which is so important as the easy questions keep moving over to the bots.
2: And it's not just that NPS
4: score at the very end.
2: Like, how did Clara do on that last call? It's like, no, we actually know how she did and how yeah. we can help her be better. Which I is- don't need to send you a survey. I know exactly right. how she did. That's awesome. I love it. I love
0: it. One less survey. Life could be much better. No, it's kidding.
2: People fill those <laughs> out. I always wonder. No, it's like the really happy or the really angry, right? Yeah. Like, I, I can't stand Ray what he just said to me on that service call. One star. Mm, you know, or like, oh, my God, I love Clara. I'm going to send five stars. Yeah, that's, it's just. It's Every
0: interaction is a five at the end of the day. happy,
2: supremely <laughs> upset. Okay, so. I, I have a really quick lightning fast question because I know we're, we're going to be over time. Clara, it's, Ray asked you if it's 2040. I'm going to ask you to go back and whisper one piece of advice to Clara sitting at her desk as a software engineering intern. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you're, you know, like, let's go back to Oracle, right, and just whisper in your ear of like one piece of advice that you've learned that you would like to give yourself when you were sitting in that desk.
4: Believe in yourself. I love that. Yeah. I love love that. that. Yeah. Had a lot of imposter syndrome when I was an intern. Yeah.
2: (laughs) I I I feel like I I had that even like my last three jobs. Like it just it's just forever. So it's a it's the constant it's the constant reminder. Constant
4: yeah. We should remind ourselves and each other of that. Yeah. For sure. Right. I
0: love it. Well, there you have it. Clara Shai, believe in yourself, CEO of Service Cloud at Salesforce. You can follow her at Twitter at C-L-A-R-A-S-H-I-H. Thanks a lot for being on the show today and congratulations on your role. And of course, you know, having some fun at Salesforce. Great place to be. So.
4: Thank
0: you. All right. Wow. Um, as you know, our goes by super fast here on Disrupt TV. And uh, any thoughts on your end before we talk about who's next on episode number 244? Yeah,
2: I'm, I'm pretty sure that this is just another case of Vala conveniently having a vacation when you have three ridiculously smart guests on that make me walk away feeling like a dope. I'm just saying, this tends <laughs> to be a theme when you bring Liz on to Disrupt TV. And I'm just going to blame it on volume. We only bring the
0: best guests for you. We only bring the best guests. Well, you
2: know, and then I walk away like, what? We're like, I'm just going to go like, I'm going to go knit something or something. I don't know, but like, that was amazing. Oh my God. But (laughs) here's the thing that I'm walking away with from, is that every single one of the guests today talked about something really important. And that was the humanization of everything that we do. And that was that was in every you know from design to where we take compute and where we take privacy to where we take service. It was all about bringing that human, really, and embracing it, like really embracing humanization in our businesses. And I thought that was a really awesome thread.
0: That's a great point. We're humanizing digital. We're humanizing technology. More importantly, we're humanizing our experiences and. Uh... Yeah, it's been great having these guests. Next week on episode 244, we have Mark Rosekind, PhD and Chief Safety Innovation Officer at Zooks. We also have TJ Jang, CEO of AbPoint. They just went public. And of course, Linda Hill, co-founder of Paradox Strategies and HBS, Harvard Business School professor. They'll all be here next week on Disrupt TV. If it's Friday, if it's 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, come join us for a live Disrupt Disrupt TV show. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend.
2: Later, guys.